A listener note, this story contains adult content and language. In March 2015, Deborah Newell realized she had married a stranger, a man whose past was a series of fabrications. John had seemed desperately in love with her. She hadn't listened when her family told her his stories didn't add up. But now she had proof. Police reports, restraining orders for multiple women, jail and prison records. He was a serial con man, a master of intimidation. And according to the records, he had a nickname that went way back. Dirty John. Deborah hastily cleared her things out of the Balboa Island house they shared. She had to walk away from $50,000 she'd paid on the year-long lease. She began living out of hotels, hiding. John was stuck in the hospital after back surgery with an intestinal blockage. He began texting her accusations that she could not make sense of, that she had hit him, that she'd stolen $10,000 from his wallet. He threatened to call the police on her. He had become unrecognizable to her. He had seduced her with lavish, unending compliments about her beauty. Now he denigrated her looks, mocked her age, ridiculed her attempts to stay attractive at 59. Five marriages and a family that hates you. You want to see how this plays out? I sure do. You want to see how bad this turns out? You hit me. You threaten me, she replied. Enough. You're evil. This is a special version of the Dirty John, remixed and remastered by Salt Audio. Business. His motive was coming into focus. Divide up the stuff and I never see you again, he wrote. Your choice. He said people he knew in the mafia had contacted him. Long lost relatives. He warned her. Be careful here. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is Dirty John. I'm Christopher Gofford. Part 3. Filthy. Well, the mob, the mob always had a presence in our home. My grandfather was a holder, is basically what he was, is what my dad explained to me, is he held money. And I remember they would roll the $100 bills up and they'd shove them into the shower curtains. It was so funny. I was 12 years old at the time. I'm like, who puts money in the shower curtain rod? I'm talking to Donna Meehan-Stewart, one of John Meehan's sisters. They grew up in San Jose, California, where their Brooklyn-raised dad ran the Diamond Wheel Casino. People came to play poker, lowball, and pan. The kids cleaned the floors and the ashtrays for money. Donna says that what John and his brother absorbed from his father and the men around him was a set of illicit skills, like how to file bogus lawsuits and pull off insurance scams. This is how you go about doing things dishonestly and cheating and... You know, they they taught those boys that. My both my brothers were that way. They they knew how to work systems. They knew how to lie. I'm trying to trace John Meehan's path from his childhood in San Jose to the day he lied and charmed his way into Deborah Newell's life. I'm trying to find out what he wanted to hide. Growing up with John was hell. Maybe it was just this sibling rivalry, but there was definitely issues. 
with John. This is John Meehan's other sister, Karen Duvalet. She went to Prospect High School with him in Saratoga, California in the mid-1970s. He was very popular because of his sports. And he was very good looking, so he was a chick magnet. Had a lot of women. He had, um, you know, a lot of charisma. He learned at a very young age how to work it. From as far back as I can remember, he was a straight-A student. I think John thought he was smarter than everybody else because everybody told him he was, but he had no common sense. He wasn't groomed to take that and be successful and to help other people and, you know, be grateful that, you know, you were blessed with these gifts. Instead, he was taught to manipulate at a very early age. And that's the fault of my parents, especially my dad, because that's all my dad knew. She says the family was related to Albert Anastasia, the East Coast mobster who ran Murder, Inc. This is a name you know if you have even a passing interest in mafia history. Reporters called him the Mad Hatter and the Lord High Executioner, and he was famous for eliminating potential witnesses. He died in 1957, riddled with bullets in a New York City barbershop. You might have seen the photo. John and Karen's grandmother did have the surname Anastasi, but I couldn't find a conclusive genealogical link to the mob family. What matters is that John grew up with this as the family lore, and in the way others boast about forebears who are on the Mayflower, John bragged about this supposed mafia pedigree. You know, and if anybody did anything to John, or you know, my dad would tell us, you go out there with a stick and take care of it. The Brooklyn mentality of you fight, you get even, Um, If you want to get back at somebody, you don't get back at them, you get back at their family. That's where that mafia mentality came in. John was really influenced by my dad. And that's what John locked on to, was the, the glamour of a mafia family. And it's just, you know, I look at it now and it's just still so weird. The sisters say their mother had an affair with a casino worker and their parents divorced. At the time, Karen was a high school freshman and John was a sophomore. And that's when, she says, John started to go really bad. It was a very bitter, it was a very angry divorce. You know, we were the all-American family, two boys and two girls, and literally one night I came home and it was gone. It was blown up. And he just hated my mom for destroying the family. And I think that is the beginning you know, of John, you know, I think, you know, up until that point, he probably could have gotten some help if my parents would have stayed together long enough, but, you know, he got caught in the wheel of dysfunction. You know, my other brother was gone, my sister was married, and then there was me, so it was John and I that got kind of dumped. She says John hated his father, too. His father encouraged him to join the Air Force. She says the Air Force offered John a free ride through medical school, but he didn't want to give up the years of his life. So here he was, graduated high school, living here and there, working in hospitals as orderlies, you know, and um, wheeling and dealing, selling cocaine now. She says her brother was obsessed with the James Bond movies, Sean Connery's Bond, suave and beyond the law with a license to kill. That was the image of himself John favored. He had a customized license plate that said M-E-E-007. He actually went to Santa Clara University for a while but got in trouble all the time. 
It was just easier for John to just be 007 and to, you know, deal with women and money and, you know, cars and just hustle. He was a hustler. And whatever he had to do to get money, he would do. He was in the Taco Bell and he picked up a piece of glass and put it in a taco and uh, bit into it. The company that my dad worked for was the one who paid the claim. So I don't know if they were both in cahoots on that or what, but I know my dad was hurting for money back then. She tells me another story about a time John jumped in front of a Corvette and accused the driver of hitting him. It busted his leg pretty good, but, you know, my dad was behind that one and got John a grip of cash, a settlement. The sisters tell me that John got busted for drug dealing, that he testified against a friend in exchange for leniency, and that as part of the deal, he had to leave California. John got a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Arizona in 1988, and that fall, he enrolled in law school at the University of Dayton. I found a man named Kevin Horan, who happens to be an FBI agent now, but in the fall of 1988, they were law school classmates. I don't know if it was an air about him or the way he wore his clothes or the way he, you know, looked or whatever. He just kind of had a look of like, like like a California guy. I don't know. I don't know why that stuck out with me, but it did, but... He says John didn't make a strong impression as a student. He made his name in other ways. I was living with some some buddies right there on campus, um, and they they were the ones that really got to know him, and, and I think it pretty much coined the phrase uh, that I, ca- I came to know uh, of him, and it called him Dirty John. And um, again, that had to do with... Uh, I think just him being kind of having a little reputation as a ladies' man or something like that. Along with Dirty John, they called him Filthy John. Sometimes they just called him Filthy. In the fall of 1989, Kevin moved into a house John was renovating out by the cemetery. Was he secretive about his past? Uh, you know, either I never asked or he just never talked about it or whatever, but it, you know, it, it, I guess it, it speaks volumes of the fact that I don't know anything about him. I hardly know anything at all about him. And, and here I live with him. I want to say it probably was that semester. I was noticing he was bringing girls back to the house. One of them was Tanya Sells, a pretty young nurse. She seemed so nice and innocent that Kevin had to wonder how John had won her. Here's an uh, intelligent, articulate, decent-looking guy at the University of Dayton Law School who, you know, seems to have his life together. This is Tanya, who now lives outside of Atlanta. He would tell you story after story about, you know, that he just comes from this family that's just not him. And, you know, that he, he, he was able to escape them because other people stepped up into his life and helped, you know, you know make him a great, great person. <laughs> the last semester of the second year of law school, John disappeared. Completely vanishes, and uh, no one. I was talking to everybody, and and everyone's like, "What happened to Dirty John?" And like everyone's like, "I don't." He just didn't come back. They got an answer when his report card arrived at the house. And I remember, you know, kind of peering peering through the through the envelope, um, you know, the light peering through it. That you know, I remember seeing a bunch of D's and F's, and uh, so I knew. I mean, we knew that he was done. That he had basically uh, flunked out. Kevin says John's mail kept arriving at the house, boxes of CDs, credit cards, and fictitious names. It was clear that John had been running scams. Kevin says John also took money from an older woman for a roofing job he never completed. 
I found another law school classmate of John's, Lance Gildner, who says John seemed proud of the credit card swindle, not sheepish about it at all. Lance thought, this guy is committing felonies. So the name Dirty John, it started with his womanizing, but it seemed to grow and evolve and encompass a bunch of other things that he did, like these housing scams, right? It probably was a a conglomeration of many different things that people knew about him, that he was basically this, this, this strange lone wolf, guy that, you know, did all kinds of, you know, scandalous type things. And it wasn't just with women. I knew this stuff about Tanya, that he was cheating on her, you know, that, you know, that people called him, you know, filthy and dirty John. And he was ripping off little old ladies and stuff like that. John was still in the area. And his latest deception was at once more audacious and more intimate. He was getting married to the pretty nurse. It's November 10, 1990, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Dayton, Ohio. John Meehan, failed law student, is about to marry Tanya Sells, who is about to graduate from anesthesia school. This is the bride's family church, where she was baptized and her dad was an altar boy. The officiating priest is her uncle. Heavenly Father, hear our prayers for Tanya and John. The bride is 25. The groom is 31, though she thinks he's 26. He's told her he was born in 1964. She also thinks his name is Jonathan, although his name is just John. He's shaved five years off his age and added five letters to his name. Did it uh, strike you as strange that he didn't bring anybody to his wedding from his family? Okay, well, I, I mean, I can explain that. He would. He told me that, you know, you know his, his dad was an alcoholic and his mom uh, was addicted to, to painkillers and that they were embarrassing and that they didn't get along and that the wedding day was about him and he didn't want them ruining it. John fidgets and smirks in his tux through the ceremony. He looks like a boy in a grown-up's costume enjoying some fantastic private joke. John wears that glib, devil-may-care expression as his friend Phil gives the toast. Um, y'all don't know John real well. <laughs> and um, I've known him for about three or four years now. And if you talk to any of his friends, you'll just, as far as a reaction to his wedding, you'll just find out that they're completely shocked and baffled. <laughs> and the reason why... <laughs> Bail yourself out. No, and the reason why, and I think one of the reasons John and I hit it off real well or started to become friends, is uh, we're a little bit skeptical people, you know? To see John truly be in love is an inspiring thing for me. (laughs) And I'm sure for his friends, too. And so, John, I wish you the best of everything and may you live happily ever after. Thank you. Phil might be describing a guy he's just met for all we learn about him. I track down another of John's groomsmen, and he tells me how strange the wedding felt. A Don Draper wedding, he calls it. A reference to the John Hamm character on Mad Men who is living under a fake name with a fabricated past. John, how do you feel this, this, this evening? I feel good, thanks, Phil. 
And thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the uh, toast. You did a damn good job, and I appreciate everybody being here, uh, except Lance. <laughs> thank you. And so, uh, what do you got planned for the, the rest of the evening here? The rest of the evening, uh, drink, frivolity, fun, plundering pillages near and far. Sounds good. <laughs> There's a blank space where the story should be, and the stories his buddies do have aren't repeatable. Let me start by saying this. John Meehan's nickname is Filthy John Meehan. Yeah. Yeah. But why? Why? Friends, why? Remember when you first created that nickname and why? Yes, I do, but it cannot be divulged on camera. After the wedding, watching this video, Tanya is surprised to learn that this is the nickname of the man to whom she has just pledged her life. Tanya asks him about it, and he laughs it off. It's nothing. Ten years into the marriage, Tanya made a phone call he'd always forbidden. She, you know, clearly was shocked to be getting the phone call, but she also said in that phone call, I always knew you would call me. You know, I always knew that this would happen. Tanya is talking about how she tracked down John's mother, Dolores, in July 2000. Tanya had helped put John through nursing school at Wright State in Dayton and then through the Middle Tennessee School of Anesthesia, and they had two daughters. But now he was leaving her. He'd been working at Good Samaritan Hospital in Dayton and traveling between hospitals in nearby states. He was not a doctor, but a nurse with specialized training in anesthesiology, a nurse anesthetist. And he'd been having an affair with a doctor in Michigan, though Tanya didn't know the details at this point. So Tanya called his mom. She reads to me from her journal. I told her who I was and that John had left me asking me for a divorce. I told her that he had always forbidden me to talk to anyone in the family, but that now that I had nothing to lose, I wanted to know if she would talk to me and help me answer some questions that I had about John. She proceeded to tell me the following, and I just make like bullet points. John's real birthday is 2359. So that's the day I get confirmation of that. His birth name is John Michael Meehan, not Jonathan Michael Meehan. He had gotten arrested in California. Uh, late 70s, I think it was actually early 80s, for uh, selling cocaine and turned in his best friend as a plea bargain. His mom asked me if he was still using drugs. (laughs) I was like, what? She called his sister Donna, who told her some of the same things, and his sister Karen. We talked for two hours. Um, In quotes, I wrote, we'll tell women anything to get them to like him. She said he was a genius, got straight A's. Tanya searched the house they shared in Springboro, Ohio, and found a hidden box containing the powerful surgical anesthetics Versed and fentanyl. As a nurse anesthetist herself, she knew there was no legitimate reason for him to bring these drugs home. At some point, he'd become hooked on the drugs he was supposed to be giving patients. She told police who started an investigation. This was September 2000. Depending on the state and the hospital you're in, when you go in for surgery, whether it's knee surgery or open-heart surgery, your life is often in the hands of the nurse anesthetist on duty. 
They put in the breathing tube and they monitor your vital signs while you're under and they control the amount of pain medication you're getting. An MD, that's the anesthesiologist, may or may not be supervising them. Anesthesia, if you're a good anesthetist, you've got some experience. We always say the job is 99% boredom because everything's going right. You're doing things right, everything's right, and 1% sheer terror because when things go bad, they go really bad. And if you don't have all your faculties, how are you going to handle something when it goes bad? How easy is it in that position, like John was, to steal the drugs? Extraordinarily easy. But here's the deal. Even though it's easy, anybody can do it. Um, once you start using, it's not so easy anymore because you need more and more and more and more, and you get sloppy and sloppy and sloppy. At worst, anesthetists who are stealing drugs and injecting them can miss something vital and kill a patient. More commonly, they leave a patient in excruciating pain. If it looks like the anesthetist gave the right amount of medicine and the patient wakes up in you know, hurting and in terrible pain and their blood pressure is high and their heart rate is high, and then, and then that's usually how the anesthetist starts getting looked at. Do they have a series of patients who are coming out that seem like they should be comfortable and they're not? I supported him while he went to nursing school. I supported him while he went to anesthesia school. And this is what he put a black mark on my, you know, my, my profession, but my profession. And I helped him get there. I had guilt about that. And so that, guilt about that, having him not hurt patients and protecting my children were my driving force for going to the police and, and, um, doing what I did to, to make sure that he was stopped. John's career was unraveling. He lost his job at the Ohio and Michigan hospitals where he had been working and tried to start over in Warsaw, Indiana. Tanya's friends notified the nursing board there. And I don't know any of those details, but um, he was asked to, to get treatment. But he accused me of being the one to um, call the Indiana board to report him, which I had not. And uh, he was threatening me... Um, with these phone calls, um, because he thought that I was, you know, ruining his life, <laughs> his career. Police told her to get the threats on tape. She plays them for me. Let me ask you a question. Can you answer me a question honestly? Yes. I'm the most honest person that you know. Who called the Indiana State Board of Nursing? Why am I going to tell you that? John, I'm not going to tell you who called. Why would I do that? You're the most vindictive person I know. I don't intend Any of the things you've done haven't hurt me and you haven't done it purposely to hurt me? No. What, what were you doing it for? For kicks? No, to protect my children. Now, that's a whole different story. Listen, I, I spoke to my mom at great length. She's never going to talk to you again. I don't, John, that, why do you think that bothers me? Because we had a good long talk, John. And all this stuff you've been telling me, nothing but a bunch of lies. The fact that me getting any half of your retirement isn't bothering you. you. You spoke to her at great length about how it bothered you. I think it's wrong. But if you can sleep taking it and you can you can live with that, then go ahead. That's what I've told you from the very beginning. Well, evidence... You know that it's wrong. Evidence... <laughs> you know that it's wrong. No, it's not wrong. In your heart, you know that it's wrong. No, I know that... And that's why, and that's why from the very beginning you were going to let me keep it. Yeah, that's right. Had you just done things the way I asked you to, but no, you wanted to cause all this trouble. I'm not trying to cause trouble. I'm trying to find out the truth so I can protect my children. Your family... The children are the last 
Your family told... Yeah. They are. Your family told me some very horrible things about the person that you really are. Call my mom now and let's see how honest and upfront these horrible things were. None of them were true. None of you. So your mom, your sisters... My mom they all said, told... Go ahead and call her now. Well, you know, if you threatened her and made her feel bad for telling me, then of yeah, course she's going to change her... My mom, Amid the acrimony, they arrange for John to pick up the kids for a visitation. What compounds the awkwardness is that he's been living at Good Samaritan Hospital. I'll pick him up at 10 o'clock. Okay, I, but I have a question. I mean, what about Abby's nap? Do you want to bring her back after a couple hours and then just go out with Em so that she can sleep? I mean, you're not going to have any place to lay her down. Yeah, I'll talk. Who, who am I picking her up from? My, my house. I don't work Sundays anymore. Okay. I'll pick them up at 10 o'clock here. Okay, and, you know, don't forget, like, a diaper bag and stuff. I won't. Okay. Right. Bye. John's anger escalates, and so do his threats. Tanya plays me more calls. Well, why the hell you just get rid of my last name? I can't stand you using it. And one other thing, I have it on excellent, excellent authority. You're the one who's been making the phone calls. This is not. Sleep well. What is your problem now? What is my problem? Why are you calling me and leaving me these messages? I don't care what your excellent authority is. I didn't make the phone call. I know who did. What, ma- what, what difference does it make? I have this big smile on my face. <laughs> Why, John? Because trust me. Just, just trust me. Trust you what? Just trust me. It doesn't make any sense. I don't have to. You'll understand. What, the mafia's coming after me again, or what? When it happens, Tanya, and you see it in your eye, you remember it was me, okay? Remember what, John? Keep that in mind. It was me. Keep what in mind, John? Tanya, you enjoy your time left on this earth, okay? Because that's what it's going to come down to. And uh, who's going to take I'm, care of your children? Wrong, and if I'm wrong, Tanya, I'll buy you a fucking Cadillac, okay? What do you mean if you're wrong? What does that mean? If I'm wrong, I'll buy you a Cadillac. If, if you're wrong about what? Keep that in mind. If you're wrong about what? You're not making any sense. Listen to me, Tanya. I'm listening. I got a big smile on my face. You know why? Because it's going to get done. What's going to get done? You're not making any sense. Well, it don't happen. You will understand when the time comes. Hmm. And that's all I got to say. Yeah, and who's going to take care of your children? I'll take care of them. Right. Because I'll be in front of you guys having a big fucking Cobra Libra with a 22-year-old when it happens. That's you nice. that in mind. I swear to fucking God, if there's one thing that happens on this earth, it's going to be you. She thinks her crime, as he saw it, was in calling his mom. It was unforgivable to pierce the veil of his past. I mean, that's a big deal to John Meehan. He don't want people sharing information about him behind his back. Because that ruins everything. That ruins his stories. Because none of it's true. You know, none of what he says is true. I got to say, one thing that struck me about those recorded calls, though, was um, like he's making these threats to you. And at one point, you're like, uh, come, come pick up the kid uh, and don't forget the diapers like you're even 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 as you're even as you're terrified of this guy, you have to uh, you have to do the child handoff. Absolutely. That's kind of insane. Exactly. And if you don't turn your kids over, guess who goes to jail? You. 
not them. The reason for even bringing up those things at the end was he was living in his call room at Good Sam. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a place to visit with the children. He didn't have a place to put a child down for a nap. She says he never hurt her. She says he got a day of anger management classes for the threats. And that's it. And police couldn't seem to make a case on the drugs he'd taken. I didn't really know what he was necessarily capable of doing, but I was scared out of my skin. I don't okay. know if the whole thing made me nervous or it's just, you know, when you've, when you've been living a life for 12 years and, and one, one day or over the course of a few months, you find out that it's all been made up and, and wasn't true. I mean, it really rocks the core of who you are and what you believe is true and honest and, you know, good in the world. And that's, that's something that's hard to explain to someone who maybe has never, you know, had to experience that. You can be smart in the brain and not smart of the heart <laughs> or not have, you know, a lot of life experiences or street smarts to, you know, come across, you know, even characters who are 10% of what John was, you know, people who lie to you or cheat you or steal from you. I'd had a pretty easy, normal, you know, upbringing, childhood and, and everything. And this was, this was my first experience with evil. The incident was reported to a police agency on September 25th, 2000, okay? And it was reported to the police agency when the wife had discovered the drugs. Dennis Lucan is a retired investigator on the drug task force of the Warren County Sheriff's Office in Ohio. Of all the criminals Lucan studied, hunted, and arrested during a four-decade career in law enforcement, John Meehan would come to occupy a singular place in his memory. He came to see him as a devil-tongued flim-flam artist with the cold intelligence of a spy, a void where his soul should have been, and a desperate drug addiction that he would marshal his dark talents to feed. Lucan took over the case in January 2002. He says he found emails showing John had sent drugs to his brother Daniel, who died of an overdose in Santa Cruz County in September 2000 at age 44. He couldn't make a case on that one, but he did manage to charge him with theft of surgical drugs. What about this case fascinates you so much to the point where you've paid attention to developments in this guy's life uh, long after your involvement in the uh, Ohio case ended? Well, the thing is, it was so intriguing at the time when I began conducting it, and as luck would have it, I got some breaks early on that I was able to uh, confront John and charge him with one count of theft and and finding out about the emails to his brother where he was shipping drugs to him just the most devious person I've ever met and so we were able That's to charge a lot him for a, for a career cop yeah 
uh, it is. You know, after after a total of forty years, I can say he's the most devious, dangerous, deceptive person. And there are so many things that John has probably done that we will never, ever, ever know. It's just the fact that in talking with so many individuals, like I say, uh, telling him, telling me about him having a gun in the operating room, having him. Uh, withdraw Demerol, stoop down, and then come back up and never see it administered to a patient, as I read in one of the reports. Meehan pleaded guilty in 2002 to felony drug theft, and Lucan saw to it that he had his license yanked in Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan. Meehan did not show up for his sentencing. And in June, he was found at a Comfort Inn in Saginaw, Michigan, He was in a semi-conscious state surrounded by syringes and drug vials from another stolen anesthesia kit. They loaded him into the ambulance. En route to the hospital, he grabbed the drugs and jumped out of the ambulance. He ran into a J.C. Penney, climbed an elevator shaft, and scuffled with a cop who was trying to catch him. John spent 17 months in prison, and Lucan thought maybe the case was closed. But as the years passed, he would hear of a seemingly endless list of women he had scammed or was trying to scam. And so at that point in time, I knew this this case was going to go on until either somebody killed him or he killed somebody. When John got out of prison in 2004, his sister Donna tried hard to help him. She says he was ordered into a drug treatment program in Ohio. She covered his overdue child support. She got his car out of impound and his house out of foreclosure, landscaped it, got it move-in ready for him. This is on Lakewood Drive in Hamilton, Ohio. She gave him a credit card, too. His divorce was final, and he was going to learn to be a father again with supervised visitation of his kids. I mean, there was nothing he would have he would have had to do except to be a better person and go get help and and he had medical insurance and dental insurance and uh, to take this time and if you're really sorry for everything you did and you want to be a better person you there would have been no excuse money nothing she was heading to the door about to catch her flight home to california when she looked over her shoulder i said i'm leaving now And his back was towards me, and his laptop computer was open, and I saw Match.com. And I knew, oh, my God, is this what we're going to do? Your first night home? Is this it? Match? Really? Uh. What signal did that send you? Women. Women. What was important to him was getting a date right away. Women, how did you, you've been in prison. How do you know about Match.com? And and the reason I mention that is because that was his vehicle for picking all of his victims, these dating sites. John's neighbors told her they saw a parade of women coming through the house. He was racking up credit card debt and didn't seem to be looking for work. He moved to California where Donna gave him a spare bedroom at her Newport Beach house and a job at a real estate business. So John needed to re-enter the workforce. And 
he did that haphazardly. It was a disaster. He would never show up. I don't know what he was doing. He was going to the doctors all the time. He was going to hospitals. He says his back, I need to get my back fixed. My back hurts. And this is 2005 now. We had a difficult time with him because he was constantly seeking drugs. And I told him, I said, John, if you're doing this for drugs, I'm not going through this again. I can't. This is it. Donna found out that her insurance premiums had skyrocketed because of John's claims. In 2007, she decided to move to the Palm Springs area with her husband. He wasn't going to get better. He was going to do to me what he was doing to everybody else and just suck them dry. John followed her to the desert, and she says he stayed with her for about eight months. She says he rented a house and opened up shop doing RV repairs. I stopped helping him. He became pretty self-supportive, but I couldn't figure out where all the money was coming from. Wow, you're doing really good. Oh, my gosh. Well, he's stealing it. She says he bragged about pulling off a swindle with a Ford Explorer she gave him. He waited outside a bar and slammed on his brakes so a drunk would rear-end him. He collected a personal injury settlement, then filed a bar complaint against the lawyer who'd represented him to avoid paying his bill. Apart from dating sites, John met women at the hospitals he had checked himself into. Donna remembers an ER nurse calling her. She says, I, I need to talk to you. It's about your brother, and I'm sure you know about us, and we've been dating, and it was pretty serious, and I'm just so confused. I don't understand, and there's silence on my end, and she says to me, you have no idea who I am, do you? And I said, no. She got another call from a Riverside County woman who sued him for taking $50,000 of her money. I drove to the Riverside Courthouse. I pulled the case. I copied the complaint. I read it. I went over to his little office he had on Perez, and I remember I threw it at him. And I said, John, this is it. This is the end. You're off our medical. I don't want anything to do with you and you've got to give this girl her money back. No, no, you don't understand. It, it was a business deal. It was a business venture. And I said, nothing you do is a business venture. I was, I, I was hysterical. I was really upset. I was crying. I, I just felt crushed. I felt sick. Sick, sick, sick. Still, she allowed John to put his trailer on her RV lot in Cathedral City. But months went by and he refused to leave. He began waging a legal battle against his sister, the person who had tried hardest to help him. He claimed the lot was his. He complained to the DA. He wrote to the Department of Real Estate. He's trying to take what I had given him to use for his own benefit. I was crushed. My husband was crushed. He was pissed. So I thought, okay, all right, I'm a big girl. Uh, I'll fight as hard as I fought for you. I'm going to fight you. And I did. I got a restraining order. My daughter had to testify. I had a hearing. My aunt had to show up. John came straight out and uh, threatened to kill you? Yes, in an email to my daughter. 
She managed to get a court judgment against him for money she had lent him and he had promised to pay back. I knew I'd never see that money, but I did it to protect myself because John left me alone after that. It was never the money. It was leave me alone. It was all I had to me that was stronger than a gun. The best glimpse into how John Meehan perceived himself, the best account of how he framed a life littered with self-made disasters, might be in a letter he wrote in June 2012, asking a friend to help him get his nursing license back. In it, John cast himself as the brave, often betrayed, long-suffering victim in his life's twisted narrative. He was the victim of his parents, who used him as a pawn in their divorce and treated him coldly, of his ex-wife, who called police on him and kept his daughters from him, of his mother, who fed damaging information about him to his ex, of false accusations that he supplied prescription drugs that killed his brother, of a herniated disc, which necessitated drugs to escape his pain and depression. To be honest with you, I was abusing this stuff not to get high or feel good, but because it allowed me to sleep, he wrote. My job, putting people to sleep. He explained that he checked into the Saginaw hotel room with the intention of killing himself, and he'd taken a shower with the aim of leaving, quote, a good-looking body. He injected himself with Versed and fentanyl, he said, but didn't get the fatal dose right. This is likely a lie. The man who put people to sleep for a living would have known the right dose. In state prison, his suffering continued. You don't even want to know what being in a Michigan prison is like, he wrote. One guy came at me thinking I was going to be easy. They found him in the shower the next morning. I did what I had to do. Several times. And they finally figured out I was not worth the effort of the trip to the ER. I learned fast and always had that ability to turn it on when needed. The letter had the trappings of a confession, but at heart it was a long snarl of self-justification. It was stingy with insights into what created its author. Donna says John was bitterly preoccupied by the past. He once told her about visiting their hometown in 2012, the old neighborhoods, and the cemetery where their mother, who died a few years earlier, was buried. And I said, did you go to mom's grave? And he said, yes, I sure did. And I pissed on it, and it made me feel really good. And I said, John, that's sick. And he laughed. And I believe he did. So that's a pretty intense level of hatred that he had for her. He did. He did. But didn't he do that with every woman in his life? Basically. You know? I mean, if you look at the behavior, because I only know of the ones I know. I don't know the ones I don't know. She says John hated his father intensely, too. And that when their father was dying of cancer in Southern California in 1997 in a hospice bed, John came to visit. Donna says her dad had a little time left, and she'd been keeping watch by his bedside. But when John arrived and she left to take a shower, John was left alone with him briefly. And when she returned, her dad was dead. She has never been able to shake the feeling that John had something to do with it. Is there any way to prove that, um, that he injected your father um, as he was dying with morphine or some kind of opioid to 
that would have killed him? No. Like, is there any, is there, your father was cremated, so there's no way to know. No, and he took the ashes and he said that he spread them out over the bridge, but none of us ever knew. And so you literally just left your father's bedside for yes. five minutes. And John was yes. alone with him for five minutes and that was it. Yep, yep. And my sister's the one that talked to the doctor. She called the oncologist. Someone gave him too much morphine or something. My brother wanted any money that was due him. And my dad's death was, his illness was taking any longer than it was supposed to be. Just be over it. I want to go. I don't want to be here. Yeah. Hated my dad. Back in Orange County, California, in March 2015, the woman who had been married to John Meehan for four months did not know all of this. Deborah Newell hadn't talked to John's law school classmates or his ex-wife or the Ohio cop, nor did she get the history of his life and crimes from his sisters. But she did have a stack of documents outlining a history of arrests and restraining orders and swindles, more than enough to scare her. His threatening texts amplified her fear. But as he lay at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, his tone became conciliatory, repentant. He begged her to see him. He wanted to explain everything. I still love you and simply can't live without you. I don't want this. I want us without anyone else, John wrote. I am flawed, but I'm not so easy to give up on you. When I met you, it was simply you. I helped you to get back on your feet and stood up for you. I love you and need you. Please. On the next episode of Dirty John... He, he found me any way possible. He would text me. I'd block him from his cell phone. I blocked him from my aunt's cell phone. I blocked my aunt's cell phone. I blocked him from email. I blocked my aunt's email. I blocked Facebook. I got off Facebook. I got off Instagram. I got off every social media possible. He still found me. Dirty John is reported and written by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Karen Lowe is our producer and editor. Audio designed by Jeff Schmidt. Executive producers Jeffrey Glazer and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. During this production, our LA Times team has included Shelby Grad, Steve Clow, Robert Meeks, and Devon Maharaj. You can read the story at latimes.com. This is a special version of Dirty John, remixed and remastered by Salt Audio. 